Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast friends. We have a special episode today I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. Our guest is Liz Ann Saunders, the chief investment strategist of Charles Schwab. In today's episode, Liz Ann starts off by sharing some timeless lessons from her mentor, the great Marty Zweig. Then she shares her view of the economy and markets. She touches on earnings estimates, expectations for the Fed, market breadth, and where she sees opportunity going forward. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Lizanne Saunders. Lizanne, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. I'm Really, really excited to have you on the show today. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We're going to get into all sorts of stuff today, but I can't start this without somewhat starting at the beginning because this is for the younger listeners, really. Older crowd may know who Marty Zweig was, but a massive influence on me early in my career, reading everything he had written, really a titan of our industry, and you had the chance to get started working with him. Can you just tell the listeners real quick who Marty Zweig was? Yeah, and, and you're right, Meb. He was just a, just an icon. And it was funny because when I graduated undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do other than I wanted to live and work in New York City. So I actually had a, a bunch of initial interviews across the spectrum of industries. It wasn't all finance companies and um, had this interview set up with, with Zweig Avatar. And of course, I wanted to do some research on the company and Marty and his partner, Ned Babbitt. And at that time, no internet, um, no social media. So I literally was in the library turning the crank on the microfiche and reading newspaper articles. So that was my first introduction to who he was. And, you know, quite famous at that point, had the best-selling investment newsletter ever at that time, publicly traded mutual funds, started one of the first ever hedge funds, which is still going, Zweig Domena Partners, coined the phrase, don't fight the Fed. There's the Zweig Brett Thrust indicator. He invented the put-call ratio. Famously, in 1987, he was on um, Wall Street Week with another late great, Lou Schukeiser, and precisely predicted the crash of 87 three days before. And what was 
What was interesting about that time is I, I had only been at the company a year at that point. So I started in September of 1986. And by August of 1987, we were asset allocators. I was on the institutional side of the business. Marty ran, again, the hedge funds and the mutual funds. And on the institutional side, we had gone from close to fully invested in equities down to only about 20% invested in equities by the end of August. And in Marty's case, in the hedge fund in particular, basically went net short. Fast forward to October 19th, the market crashes and we start buying aggressively. So naive, you know, 22 year old me thinks, why is everybody freaking out? You just figure out beforehand that a crash is coming, take all your money out, the crash happens and you go in at lower prices. (laughs) Little did I know how hard that was. (laughs) You know, it's, it reminds me when I, I started, we started Cambria. This is uh, right before the global financial crisis. And we had written a trend following paper, you know, very basic stuff. And trend following did great during the GFC, but it was very similar. I remember like skipping into work because we we're sitting in cash, but that everyone I was working with was just pale. You know, every day the market, Lehman closing market, I was like, what are you guys upset about? Like, you know, the just, the trend following seems to be working. This seems so simple. And of course, it's it's never so simple. It's but, never simple. You know, I had a blog post. I just looked it up thir- 10 years ago. Is about Marty Zweig because we've had Jim Rogers on the show and I love him, but he had a quote where he said, I've never met a rich technician and technician like technical analysis used to be a phrase that I feel like was kind of derogatory by the vast majority of the investment industry. You know, today it's sort of been glossed over. And if you call people quants, you know, then it's like a much more sophisticated, you know, people are on board. If you look at like the top 10, you know, hedge fund managers every year, it's like most are kind of technician quanti. They may not call themselves technicians, but quanti. So I had this post where I said, it says, I've never met a rich technician. And the giant says, Marty Zweig penthouse could fetch 120 million. You know, it's like the, like the most expensive piece of New York real estate was from a quote technician. So uh-huh. I was in that apartment. It was quite spectacular. So I'm not going to ask you to recite all of his rules because there's many and we'll put it in the show note listeners, but they're pretty fantastic. Is there one that sticks out in your mind? You mentioned don't fight the Fed. Is that the one that really sits home for you? Or is there another one where you're like, you know what? Honestly, there there are so many of them, but I'd say it's the sentiment indicators that he either pioneered or really focused on that have always resonated most with, with me. In fact, w- one of the I think the most interesting responses he ever gave to a reporter who was in the office doing a long form interview on him. And and these were the days where even when computers came into the mix, he still kept track of all of his indicators on, you know, that green accounting graph paper in pencil. I mean, he was really old school. And this reporter asked him if you had to throw away all but one of your indicators that you've used over the years in the past, currently only one. You had to rely on just one to kind of, you know, time the market. What would it be? And right away, he said, dueling bull or bear covers of on Newsweek and Time. And that, of course, was before the internet. So it was the paper form of those magazines. And he said that was the single best indicator was if Time or Newsweek, or they both had you know, bulls on the cover that during the same week, that was 
at or near the top and vice versa with uh, with bears. So I think those sentiment indicators always resonated with me. When I first started within the first week, he came over to my desk and handed me um, a book I still recommend all the time, particularly to young people, is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And that's all about sentiment and the, you know, getting tips from your, your shoeshine guys. So th- those have always uh, been the ones that really have uh, have stuck with me in my 37 years doing this. Listeners, if you buy that book, there's a recent version where Paul Tudor Jones did either the intro or, or did a summary at the end that has a really nice chapter where he talks quite a bit in depth on some some ideas that I think is really wonderful. A couple things I love already in this podcast, we've talked about microfiche, writing in pencils, uh, things that, you know, this younger generation, like, might not even know what microfiche is, but Rukeyser gave you a piece of advice that I'm now going to co-opt forever anytime we do interviews. Can you tell the listeners what he said to you on, when you were uh, going on the show for the first time? Yeah, so I was going on for the, the first time. And for the more seasoned people, like maybe you and me, that remember the show and remember Lou, the the structure of the show was Lou would come out, do his opening monologue for, I don't know, five to seven minutes. Then he'd walk over to a conference table with the three panelists, the regular panelists that were on that night. And then everybody would get up and go over to the sofa area to interview the special guest. So I ultimately became a panelist, but my first time on the show was as the special uh, guest. This was in 1997. I had only done, I think, maybe two TV appearances prior to that. So I was I was a real neophyte and not quite still a deer in headlights, but close to it. And before the show started, I was meeting him for the first time, all the pleasantries. And then he said, are your parents still alive? I said, yes. He said, are they finance people? I said, nope, far from it. And he put his hands on my shoulder and looked me right in the eye and said, okay, when you come out and do the interview with me, get them to understand what you're talking about. And that has so stuck with me since that point in time. And I find what's interesting is that more often than not, if somebody is kind enough to send me an email or come up to me after an event or walk up to me in an airport, and they'll say, I really appreciate that you write in a way or speak in a way that people can understand, more often than not, it's people on the more sophisticated end of the spectrum, not the mom and pop. And and 37 years doing this, Mab, I'll admit, if, if I read something that clearly the person wants to show how smart they are and they're going way back at history and I'm scrolling to get to the point, we don't have time, we're inundated with this stuff, there's no reason to make it harder than it needs to be. Yeah, 100% agree. My litmus test for like a chart often, and this gets into like my economic friends, where it should be pretty obvious, like within a few seconds, like what the chart is telling you. And so many I look at and I'm like, if you gave me an hour, I cannot figure out what this is trying to say. Like it's, it's like it should be kind of intuitively obvious. But I hear you. There's, there's no more field, maybe legal. that's more jargony than our world. So much of it is, is unnecessary. All right. So we got a lot of jumping off points I want to talk about. You put out a lot of great content. One of the recent pieces you're talking about is this concept of rolling recessions. Can you elaborate what you mean by that? So not that every recession is the bottom falls out all at once, but there's usually some sort of crescendo moment 
global financial crisis, of course, would be the kind of Lehman point where everything really just melted. That clearly was the case with the COVID recession. It was a bottom falls out all at once. But this is an environment very unique to the pandemic where the weakness has rolled through over a fairly extended period of time. And it's not just within the economy, but the manifestation in inflation statistics too. And not that any of us want to rehash the early part of the pandemic, but to just sort of start the role, you go back to the point during which the massive stimulus kicked in, of course, both on the monetary and the fiscal side. And that stimulus and the demand associated with it was forced to be funneled all into the goods side of the economy because services were shut down. We had no access. That was the launch for the economy coming out of the very short-lived COVID recession. It was also the breeding ground for the inflation problem that started to develop most acutely initially on the goods side of the equation, of course, exacerbated by supply chain disruptions. Fast forward to the more recent period, We've had the offsetting kind of revenge spending in services, but we've had recession conditions across the spectrum of a lot of consumer-oriented goods, housing, housing-related, manufacturing. Those have all gone into their own recessions. It's just been offset by that later strength in services. It's manifested itself in inflation, where we're in disinflation, probably soon outright deflation in many of the goods areas, but we've had that stickier later Uh, turn higher on the services uh, side. And to me, the debate of recession versus soft landing misses the nuances of this. And that's why I've been saying that I think best case scenario isn't really a soft landing in a traditional sense, but a continuation of the roll through such that if and when services starts to get hit, you've got offsetting stability or improvement in some of those other areas. You guys talk about, you know, all sorts of different charts. And so we can get into a few or ideas. LEI is one that, you know, I've seen you mention. What what is that kind of saying? Similar, different? What's LEI? Yeah. I mean, it's it's imploded. The leading indicators have absolutely imploded. And we've never seen this kind of deterioration in leading indicators, other than not just as a warning of recessions, but in recessions, um, already in recessions. Now The mitigating, I think, factors this time, number one, the LEI has more of a manufacturing bias than it does a services bias. And that's not because the conference board who puts out the leading economic index is clueless. It's not that they don't understand that services is a bigger driver of the economy. It's the fact that the data, the components of the index, which are more manufacturing driven, are in fact the leading indicators. And that's where you see the cracks and the weakness first before it ultimately works its way into services types indicators and including the labor market. You've also got, I think, four of the 10 subcomponents of the LEI are financial related metrics like the inversion of the yield curve and stock prices. And I think it's that roll through. We've seen the acute weakness on the manufacturing and the good side clearly picked up by the leading indicators. It's just the the span of time before it hits, maybe it never does, the services side is just longer in this cycle. I still think they'll ultimately be right. If, if somebody said to me, you just have to say yes or no, does the NBER eventually declare this now, down the road, already, whatever, this cycle? 
a traditional recession, I'd say yes, but we're not there yet. I just like the theory that, you know, Taylor Swift and Beyonce are really just keeping the global economy afloat and having recently gotten to witness that in Los Angeles, I've never really quite seen anything like it. I'm a rock chick, so I, I'm not. What would be your intro music if we said, Lizanne, you got to pick a song as like a walk off. What would you be playing? Stones? Well, my favorite is Led Zeppelin by far. Okay. U2 is up there. Stones is up there. Probably Zeppelin, U2, and Stones. And I think you know that all of my written reports for decades have had rock song titles associated with them. I think my favorite is Your Time Is Gonna Come. Is that even the name of the song? But I love that song more than anything. Oh, yeah. I've used a lot of Led Zeppelin songs for song titles. I think that... That'll be the title of our uh, Waiting on Godot foreign stock market performance relative to the U.S. Uh, that we probably have had on repeat for the past 10 years, waiting for waiting for something to outperform the U.S. Well, Japan's doing okay. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get to equities in a second. There's two other sort of economic type of macro topics that I think everyone talks about and scratching their heads and, and you know, people love to debate. And we'll hit both of them, but housing and then, of course, the Fed. And I'll let you pick which one you want to hit first. So housing, I'll I'll start with that. I think really important is differentiating between the existing side of the, the ledger and the new home side of the ledger. And then separately, single family versus multifamily. There's so many cross currents happening across that spectrum that much like has been said historically that you have to look at housing um, locally to understand what the local economics are uh, driving the market, that you should never look at the real estate market housing monolithically, other than maybe a period like 05, 06 and the you know, blowing up of the housing bubble and then the subsequent bursting of the housing bubble. It was kind of a monolithic thing, but it, less about sort of regional differences, metropolitan area differences. This time, it's a big difference between what's going on in the existing market and in the new home market. And part of the reason why there's been resilience in prices more so than what we saw, say, in 05, 06, the subsequent bursting of that bubble, prices imploded, not the case this time. It's just the dynamics of what's gone on in the existing market. The fact that I think it's 60% of mortgage holders have a you know sub 4%, even a you know, decent share of that sub 3%, which effectively means they're locked into their homes at that low mortgage rate. It also explains why they haven't succumbed to the pressure of higher mortgage rates because they've locked themselves in, but it's kept that supply off the market, which has pushed a lot of buyers into the new home market. And maybe why higher mortgage rates hasn't crushed that, although sales across the spectrum of existing and new did compress in the, you know, 30, 40%. It's just prices haven't come down significantly. But in the new home sales market, there's just been a lot of sort of creativity being used in terms of financing some of these purchases, including concessions provided by the home builders themselves. So it's just sort of mitigated the more basic black and white impact of mortgage rates. And a lot of the improvement that we've seen in housing recently has been much more concentrated on the new home side of things, not the existing home side of things. So I think it's really important to do that differentiation. And then on the multifamily versus single family, 
by the end of this year, we will have added more supply into that multifamily market than any time we've seen since the early 1970s. So what had been an undersupply problem a few years ago now has the potential to be an oversupply problem, which means you're just going to have to fine tooth comb a lot of this housing data to get a true picture of the story because of that differential between existing and new, between single family and multifamily. And then, as always, the unique characteristics of various metropolitan and regional areas and, and what, what, what the economics are of those uh, local areas and what the supply-demand fundamentals uh, are. Don't fight the Fed. Uh, all-time classic Zweigism. And this period, although not maybe totally unique, has been pretty dramatic in the rise in interest rates. And they say they're kind of chilling now. What's the path forward? Uh, Best guess. What do you think um, the Fed's thinking about? What do you think they're thinking about doing uh, in the future? What surprised me with the hotter than expected retail sales numbers yesterday and IP today is it didn't really move the needle on probabilities associated with the September or even out meeting. So it still looks if you rely on on something like the you know CME Fed Watch tool looking at Fed funds futures still a decent chance that the Fed is in pause mode, that they're done. I think where the disconnect still exists is the expectation of pretty aggressive rate cuts happening next year. Now, that's not out of the question, but the the view about significant rate cuts next year is often wrapped into the sort of bullish Goldilocks, almost no landing scenario. And There, I think, lies the disconnect where the all else equal, meaning if we continue along this path of disinflation and whatever metric it is, PCE, CPI, PPI, core of any of them, super core, you know, X shelter, whatever derivation of all these inflation data you want to look like, let's say they get down to maybe not to the Fed's target, but close enough to it. But if there's you know, no further cracks in the labor market. And let's say Atlanta's Fed's GDP now is anywhere near accurate. And it's a now cast, not a forecast, but an update today at 5.8%. What prompts the Fed to start cutting aggressively? I understand that if we continue disinflation, and even if they're in pause mode, that means real rates will continue to go up. But I think under Powell in particular, they're not using the playbook from the 1970s in the sense that they believe the conditions that existed then mirror the conditions that exist now. But what I think they really want to make sure they don't repeat is the fits and starts, the victory declarations three times, easing policy only for inflation to be let out of the bag again, and then the scramble. And that's what led Paul Volcker to have to pull a Paul Volcker, as we now say, were those fits and starts. So that's where I think the disconnect is. I, I think it's probably a maybe not higher than here, but here for longer. And in particular, if you look at history, the span between a final rate hike and an initial rate cut, the narrower spans were tied to much weaker labor markets than the longer spans. So that that's the way I'm thinking about it. Being in Posmo doesn't surprise me. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Fed is done, but I, they may have to start pushing back on this market expectation of 
you know, five rate uh, cuts coming next year. You were talking about stock market performance, I believe, where you had a quote where you said there's extraordinarily wide range of outcomes in the 14 rate hike cycles since 1928, generally in the range of minus 30 to plus 30 over the span of 12 months following the final hike. That's a pretty wide outcome. Which is why what what made me put that report together, I don't quibble with somebody saying, well, the average performance of the S&P around or after the final rate hike is. That's that's factual. That's math. But it was the first time I heard somebody say the typical performance of the market. And I thought, what? If you only have 14 in your sample size and the range, at least in terms of you pointed out, you know, one year after the final hike, you had a range of outcomes from I'm rounding market down 30% to market up 30%. By definition, there's nothing typical. And if you were to do an average, by definition, none of the outcomes actually look like the average. Because when you have a small sample side with a wide range, um, shame on anyone that that doesn't add that into the mix of discussion as if there is some typical pattern or average. And, and I don't remember who first said it, I can't give credit to Marty for this one. I don't know who first said it, but analysis of an average can lead to average analysis. And I, I think that that is so brilliant. And when you plug in the word typical instead of average, it just sends such a uh, an inappropriate message that there's some normal path for the market around uh, Fed cycles. And it just shows that there's, yeah, it's an important factor. Don't fight the Fed. But there's so many other things that go into how the market and why the market behaves the way it does. The way we try to describe it is example we give is from Christmas vacation where we say, look, on average, when your crazy cousin Eddie shows up, he's probably like well-behaved, but you may get the guy who's unloading his RV septic tank in your sewer, or you may get the guy's dog, you know, knocks over the tree, you know, like you never know. So it's, I think we were, we usually use that when we were talking about gold as a diversifier in down stock market months, where like sometimes it shows up and does a great job. On average, it diversifies, but it could be any could be anywhere. The Cambria Global Momentum ETF, ticker GMOM, is a global allocation ETF with a flexible approach to take advantage of recent trends. GMOM will go where the trend and momentum is in the market. Learn how GMOM can help your portfolio. Distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the perspectives carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risk, including potential loss of capital. All right. So let's walk over a little bit towards everyone's favorite, the stock market, which on average, the market cap weighting has been romping and stomping this year after a pretty bad year last year. What's it look like to you? Summer is quickly closing for us and everyone's getting back to biz, which you know usually means more eyes on the screen. Is everyone just going to mail it in for the rest of the year and, and call it a year? I don't know about that. You know, August is always a, a tricky month when it's sort of the month that we all assume and hope everyone's chilling on the beach, but it's when some of the most tumultuous things have happened historically. And I'm not I'm not one that relies on things like monthly patterns or seasonal patterns to try to time markets. That's that's just silly. But there has been a lot of of common complacency, if not outright froth, in many of the sentiment indicators until recently. In fact, I think this consolidation period, whatever you want to call it, you know, tech sector down eight percent or so and NASDAQ down six percent. 
I think that's somewhat healthy because sentiment was getting quite frothy and the the market performance had narrowed to such a significant degree as we started June of this year that I, I think that in and of itself was a risk. You know, going back to the the low in October, at that time, the conditions actually looked quite healthy for the kind of rally we subsequently saw, even though the indexes like the S&P and the NASDAQ in mid-October last year were taking out on the downside their prior June lows. Under the surface, you were seeing improved breadth, so positive divergence in in technical terms, and that really carried to the early part of this year. Then you saw breadth roll over a little bit in the the process of going to this heavy concentration of the mega cap eight, the magnificent seven, whatever you know grouping you want to look at, and it was such that on June first of this year, it wasn't just that those small handful of stocks really represented more than all the performance, but only 15% of the S&P's constituents were outperforming the overall index over the prior 60-day period. And at least as far back as data that we have, that was an all-time record low. To see a bit of convergence where you continue to see some grinding improvement down the cap spectrum more spread out away from that small handful of names while you see some profit taking in those names kind of convergence, I think is a relatively healthy development. The the one rub right now is that all of the, the move off the October lows was multiple expansion with no contribution, at least yet, from the denominator in the PE equation. Now that you've got yields moving back up and breaking out on the upside, that is a bit of a disconnect with the valuation expansion that we have seen. And I think that's another reason for sort of a pause to assess whether the expected pickup in earnings growth by the end of this year is actually a possibility. And then maybe you can justify what became pretty rich multiples. So what do you think? Is it going to be, you know, you talk a little bit about lending standards, earnings growth, what uh, for the second half, do we think uh, earnings growth is going to flow through or? You know, it's hard to see the scenario under which earnings growth goes back into double digit territory by the fourth quarter. I think what's happening unique in this cycle is that analysts are pretty reticent to make adjustments to the out quarter estimates that they have on companies. If you if you go back to the kind of first year following the the outbreak of the pandemic, you had a record percentage of companies not just guide down, but just withdraw guidance altogether. They just said we have no clue. We're not going to even attempt to provide guidance to analysts. So, you know, basically you're on your own. Now I think although we have a lot of companies and are back to providing guidance, I think many companies have sort of taken Use the pandemic not as an excuse, but as a as a as a basis for not going back to the old ways of precision to the sense around quarterly guidance. More companies you're hearing saying, "Look, this is not how we run our business, so we want to back away from that to some degree." And so I think what that's had the result of, in addition to all these macro uncertainties, I think analysts are sort of closer to the vest in terms of the out adjustments. The, you know, we're, we're, we're just finishing second quarter earnings season. They're tweaking third quarter estimates. 
but they're not really doing much yet with fourth quarter estimates or into next year until maybe next quarter when they have more color from the companies of the stocks they cover. So therefore, I think those out estimates are maybe not all that reliable. And the other thing that's interesting about this earnings season is the beat rate was very strong, close to 80%. That's well above average. The percent by which S&P companies have beaten is I think 7.7 or 7.8. That's well above average. However, revenue beat rate is well below average. And what I think the view has been is there's this shift of eyesight to not just bottom line, but also top line, and also looking at the differential between nominal and real. So you've got nominal revenue growth that's now nil for the S&P. In real terms, it's negative, which you can infer if you've got a lot of companies beating estimates with no top line growth it means that that beat is coming all from cost cutting, which I think helps to explain not just this consolidation period in the market, but the fact that the companies beating their stocks are underperforming the typical next day performance. So I think there's there's just some interesting things going on if you peel a layer or two of the uh, the onion back that helps to explain some broader market weakness, but some of the action around what would on the surface seem to be great numbers in terms of the beat rate and the percent by which companies have beaten. Are there any particular sectors or styles that jump out at you? This could be traditional value versus growth. It could be energy or utilities or tech. You know, everyone's hot and heavy. We've been sector neutral for more than a year, feeling that factor type investing makes more sense in this environment than monolithic sector-based investing. So uh, screening for factors or characteristics. And we've we've had an emphasis on kind of a quality wrapper around factors. So self-funding companies, companies with actual pricing power, strong balance sheet, meaning low debt, higher cash, positive earnings revisions, lower volatility type of companies, and and really think that you should apply the, the screening of factors across all sectors, that there's enough volatility in sectors and opportunities that can be found that it's, I think, more appropriate to take a factor-based approach than a sector-based approach. And you've probably seen this. More and more research firms, some of the big Wall Street research firms are devoting a lot more time, attention, and resources to this factor type work. That I think is in part because we're up off the zero bound, finally, after being there for much of the time since the global financial crisis. And that ZERP, NERP outside the United States environment was one of the lack of price discovery and capital misallocation and burgeoning support for zombie companies. And I just think the return of the risk-free rate means we now have price discovery again and fundamentals are getting reconnected to prices. Active management is is at least maybe on a more level playing field relative to passive than has been the case in many years, other than first half of this year where cap weight soared again. You know, last year we saw equal weight starting to do better and all of that is sort of wrapped into the same uh, story. So we're going to continue to to probably spend more time focused on factors. The growth value thing, I love that that question. You know, do you like growth or value or what do you think about it? But what drives me crazy is when somebody gives an answer that's just as simple as, well, I like growth or I like value or I think value is going to work. And I always think, well, what are you talking about when you talk about growth and value? 
And, and I think there are really three ways to think about growth and value. The way I tend to think about it is the actual characteristics associated with growth and associated with value. Then there's the preconceived notions that people have of what's a growth stock and what's a value stock. Well, tech, yeah, that's growth and utilities or energy, that's value. And then most interesting, particularly this year, is what the indexes hold that are labeled growth and value. And really stark is what happened this year with the two different timeframes associated with the rebalancings that happen among the two big growth and value index providers. So S&P has four growth and value indexes. So does Russell. Now, Russell is used more as benchmarks, but S&P is obviously a well-known index uh, company. So their, their four indexes are S&P pure growth, S&P growth, S&P pure value, and S&P value. If you're in their regular growth or value indexes, you can also be in the other. You can be in S&P growth and you can be in S&P value, which makes sense because there are stocks that have both characteristics. However, if you're in S&P pure growth, you don't overlap into value and vice versa with value. So S&P does their rebalancing in December every year. December 19th, to be precise, just this past December. So here's what happened. December 18th, S&P pure growth, I'm just going to use that as an example, was 37% technology. And all eight of the mega cap eight were in S&P pure growth. On December 19th, only one of the eight was still in pure growth. The other seven moved into a combination of regular growth and regular value. The only one left in pure growth was Apple. As a result of that rebalancing, technology went from being 37% of pure growth to 13% of pure growth. Energy became the highest weighted sector. Healthcare became number two. Why energy? People think of it as value. Well, that's where all the earnings growth was in the prior year. It's the only place where there was earnings growth last year. Well, fast forward to the end of June when Russell did their rebalancing, energy was no longer displaying growth characteristics. So they did their rebalancing and there wasn't much movement. So as a result, year to date, Russell 1000 growth is up, I think, 27%. S&P pure growth is up 2.7%. So I always say, what are you talking about when you talk about growth and value? Are you talking about the characteristics? Are you talking about your preconceived notions or are you talking about the indexes? And if people say, well, the indexes, I'll just, you know, I'll buy a growth index. It doesn't matter. Well, you better know what you're buying. And then conversely, since the beginning of July, now pure growth, S&P pure growth is ripping again because the energy stocks are doing well. And they just happen to still live in pure growth because the rebalancing was in December. So that's why we've never sort of made tactical recommendations outperform or underperform on growth versus value because it requires a more nuanced description of what you're talking about when you're talking about growth and value. And our factor-based work has a blend of both growth-oriented factors and value-oriented factors. It applies so much to so many investors we talk to or you read articles and they really don't get past the headline, like the name of an ETF. It'll say something. I mean, ESG has obviously been in the news a lot for, you know, you look at the various ESG indices and, and some 
own some stocks and some kick them out. Yeah, yada, yada. But like you look at like, oh, cool, I'm going to buy this whatever fund. And then you read the prospectus and you're like, well, that's actually not at all what <laughs> this kind of says it is. And so I think a lot of people get surprised when they actually, you know, look through that the obviously, and this is very clear, but the methodology matters and your definitions matter. And the other interesting thing about growth and value is that there was a point last year where utility, and I don't even know if it's still the case, but utilities as a as an SP sector were trading at a multiple, a premium multiple to the S&P to a degree that never before has been seen. So more expensive relative to the index than ever. Well, utilities still live in the value indexes. They're not growth stocks. They're never going to be rebalanced into the growth indexes. But just because they live in the value, a value index or the value indexes doesn't mean they offer value. They're just expensive stocks that happen to be housed in the value index. It's because they're not growth stocks. So what often happens is if you don't screen well on those growth characteristics, you automatically get lumped into the, the value indexes, but that you don't necessarily get that value there. You alluded to Japan earlier. Uh, speaking of value, Uncle Warren Buffett has been uh, flying around Tokyo and hanging out and buying up Japanese stocks. We can use that as a jumping point for kind of what a what are the equity markets outside of the U.S. look like? Everyone obviously is always talking about China, what's going on with their equity markets. And foreign markets in general have been in the shadow of the U.S. markets for decade, 15 years, you know, longer maybe. What do you guys think about when you're looking at uh, outside the U.S. and what's going on in the foreign equities? I don't know if you've um, met him or know him or my colleague, Jeff Kleintop, who is my counterpart on the um, international side of things. So now I'm, I'm sort of dipping into his bailiwick here, but we're all on the same broader team. So I certainly can parrot some of the thinking there. And And for the better part of the past year and a half, we've been saying diversification outside U.S. equities makes sense again. Um, that's different from saying, sell all your US equities and back up the truck and load up on nothing but international. But there was such a pushback on why you would have any uh, international exposure because the US was the only game in town. And, and that is already ebbing. Last year was a good year for many non-US markets. Our bias has been developed international versus emerging markets and within developed our bias has been more toward Japan. And in part, the reason for a bias against emerging markets is a bias against China because of what we're seeing in earnest right now, which is a very short-lived reopening surge in the economy that's giving way to some serious long-term challenges very acutely in the property market, but just their demographic challenges are, I think, still less well-known than they should be because it's just a, a massive headwind for their um, for their economic uh, growth and, and sort of standing in the, the global economy. And we're seeing it in terms of just the big drop in percentage of, of imports to the U.S. from China relative to other places around um, the world. So again, to go back where I started, we've just been saying you want to have international exposure, that there's going to actually be a benefit to having that diversification. And and 
you do tend to go in these long cycles of U.S. dominance and then international dominance. And it tends to correspond with major global economic cycles. And we think we may be at the beginning of one of these cycles where having that international mix is going to be a diversification benefit. Yeah, we'll see. I've been kind of waiting on that for a while. A lot of the conversations I've been having over the past year, and this is my interpretation of it, this is not what the advisors say, but this is kind of my modern interpretation is they say, last spring, the summer, I say, look, I just want to, I want to T-bill and chill. You know, like I got uh, this yield that we haven't had in a really long time. And it's almost like found money. And so many clients are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get 5% risk-free. Come on. And so we talked to a lot of people that say, we're just going to kind of chill out, you know, fixed income. You referenced this early. What a weird time. Negative yielding sovereigns, US briefly looked like it was going to head that way. Uh, here we are a few years later and there's income and fixed income again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that market, do you guys spend much time looking at uh, the fixed income opportunity set? You know, when you say fixed income, there's a lot. Yeah. So like Jeff is my counterpart on the international side. Kathy Jones is my counterpart on the fixed income side. So she's our chief fixed income uh, strategist. And her team was really optimistic about bonds coming into the beginning of this year, sort of bonds are hot again. And the more recent commentary has been around the recommendation to consider lengthening duration, um, particularly when you see the longer duration areas like the 10-year move up and beyond the high end of the range, you probably want to lock in those yields. And as enticing as you know, a five and a quarter percent yield is on a much shorter term treasury, there's the reinvestment risk component. So that's been the recommendations that that Kathy and her team have had specific to, you know, duration within treasuries, stay up in quality, be really careful about high yield compressed spreads, probably is not a, a permanent situation. There is some risk there. But back to the relationship with the equity market for such a long period of time, Incomorian investors in a ZERP world were forced into the equity market to generate income, and now they're not. They can stay in the safety of treasuries, which interestingly helps to explain why the big dividend yielders within the S&P are not the big outperformers or the underperformers right now, because they're that, that cohort of investors that wants at least a portion of the portfolio being that income generator, it can now occur in the safety of treasuries without either having to go out the risk spectrum on the fixed income side or go into the equity market. And I, I, I think that we're maybe in an environment similar to the 1990s in the sense that the 1990s, when you had a higher interest rate regime, you had a lot of money that was going into to money market funds while the stock market was also doing well. And that just shows that there are different sort of pockets or cohorts of, of money. And I think this move away from, and I'm going to say 60-40, and I don't mean that literally or precisely. 60, 40, 60 stocks, 40 bonds. That's one allocation in two simple asset classes. But the notion of having both equities and fixed income in a portfolio was sort of questioned because it was a brutal year last year. Well, that doesn't tend to repeat itself year after year. And, and we think that it bonds will continue to be 
a diversifier. And there are a lot of opportunities now for retirees, for Incomorian investors that lamented having to go out the risk spectrum in order to get any semblance of income. And they don't have to do that anymore. But that reinvestment risk really has to come into play when making that duration decision. So, you know, the shiny object of of more than 5% yields on the very short end, you do have to consider what happens when those mature. We're going to wind down with a couple of broad topics and questions. You know, one of your quotes that we love, not, excuse me, not your quotes, but quotes I think you like and I, so we love is, and you can tell us who who said this, but the very famous bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism and die on euphoria. Who said that? Sir John Templeton, who, by the way, I had the great pleasure of meeting on Wall Street Week. I was a panelist on an evening that he was a guest, and that was one of the highlights of my career was uh, was meeting him. And I think there's nothing more brilliant said about a market cycle than that. I like to think about it often. And, you know, to me, the better part of this year felt like, you know, markets going up after a really rough year last year and, and the vast majority of people I talked to not believing it, you know, or like maybe it's just like, you know, the, the doomers hoping it was going to continue. And so maybe... Where would you put us in this? This is the ultimate wall of worry year. You know, markets like to climb a wall of worry. And I also think that this idea that the market is now fighting the Fed, which, you know, it's never supposed to. Well, it didn't last year. But what you do look back in history is the market generally starts to rally in anticipation of the Fed finishing the cycle. Sometimes you can roll over again, particularly if the elusive soft landing doesn't materialize. But a, you know, kind of a pause or a pivot rally is not uncommon for the market. Um, but, but you know, the other adage that is apt for this year is, is the wall of worry. Yeah, I think this is you. So you can correct me. Neither get in or get out or investing strategies. They simply represent gambling on moments in time. Investing should always be a disciplined process where which should include periodic rebalancing. You know, we talk to so many investors and they say, Meb, I'm thinking about getting back in the market or I want to buy a managed futures fund. Which one do you think I should buy? Or the S&P list expensive. Should I get out? You know, and to me, this like behavioral binary in out is like one of the most detrimental ways to think about the world. Is that what you meant by this? Or do you mean something else? That's a hundred percent what I meant about that, that, get in, get out, that those are just gambling on two moments in time. Um, And that's not what investing is. Investing is a discipline process over time. And all the greats that we've talked about, whether it's Marty or Sir John Templeton or, you know, the founder of my company, Chuck Schwab or Warren Buffett, the list goes on and on. I don't know any of them that became successful investors with a get in, get out approach. It was a disciplined process over time. And that's what investing should be about. And the the beautiful discipline of rebalancing is it forces us to do what we know we're supposed to, which is a version of buy low, sell high, but you know, add low, trim high. When left to our own devices, more often than not, we do the complete opposite. And it's just, it, it, it's your portfolio is telling you when to do something. You're not relying on your ability to make a top and bottom call or listening to me try to do that. And it's why I don't try to do it because I can't. And nobody can, by the way. 
And there's just too much focus on the get in, get out. And it's why some of the exercises that the institutions, I think, force their strategists to do, like year-end price targets, I just think that that's, for, for our $8 trillion of individual investors, I just don't see how that is a relevant metric uh, because no one's right. Yeah. We often tell investors, like, you have to have a plan and a system ahead of time. 100%. If you don't, and you're really stressing about a decision of in-out, I say, look, you can go have Z's or sell half of it, but that's the least satisfying answer to people because they want to gamble on the outcome and they they want to, the emotional excitement of being right or looking back and saying, ah, I knew I should have sold, but in reality, it usually ends up the opposite. The emotional side is what what crushes people. I always say, if you can figure out whether there's a large or small gap between your financial risk tolerance and your emotional risk tolerance, that's that's a key to success. When you look around the investing landscape, your professional peers, what is one thing in particular that they would not agree with you on? Said differently, what's a belief you have that most people wouldn't agree with you about? It could be a style, a way to think about markets, an opinion, an indicator, anything. I think valuation is a sentiment indicator or better put an indicator of sentiment. And we we think of valuation as sort of this fundamental metric that's quantifiable. And to use just, you know, PE ratio as a simple example, because there's lots of different valuation metrics, but, you know, we can quantify the P, we can quantify the E, particularly if it's trailing earnings, they're there, we know what they are, forward earnings, you know, let's you have a consensus number for forward earnings, you can do the math, you can compare it to history, you can even bring interest rates and inflation into the mix to see what ranges have been. But the reality is that there's just time in the market that investors are willing to pay nosebleed valuations, like in the late 1990s. And there are times where investors don't even want to pay single digit valuations, like in early 09. So it's an indicator of of sentiment. It doesn't mean I don't look at valuations and do all that same analysis. But when push comes to shove, it's an indicator of sentiment more than anything else. That might be my favorite statement or quote of yours so far. You know, there's, I remember I was sitting on a panel, this is many years ago. So I can't remember if it was a panel or I was interviewing him or we were both just chatting. Ralph Acampora uh, was taught very famous technician listeners, but he was talking about valuation. And he was trying to, you know, he's very animated uh, and he was chatting with the audience and he said, he put this up on a screen and he said, PE ratio. He said, look at this. What's in the numerator? It's P, it's price. He's like, this is like the determining factor of valuation is where the price goes. And, you know, if you do a lot of these sentiment and price, a great example would be chart the S&P, chart sentiment. And then chart also percentage of an equity portfolio allocated to stocks. And they all move together, right? Which makes sense. You know, as price goes up, people own more. By definition, that's market cap weight. People get more excited because they're richer and on and on. And so this concept you just talked about, I think, is spot on. Your most memorable investment, not best, not not worst, could be, but just one that's seared in your brain is a trade or investment that you've made over the years that uh, you remember more than anything. It manifested itself in a real estate purchase, but 
it also worked its way into some writing that I did. So it was March of 09. It was the Friday night before the bottom. My husband and I, this is when we were living in Darien, Connecticut, surrounded by Wall Street people, lots of really brutal experiences through the financial crisis, several friends that worked at Lehman and Bear Stearns. So, but we were at a dinner party at a friend's house. I won't name a name, but this is somebody that worked on Wall Street for three decades at this point. And it's 11 o'clock, dinner was over, stragglers left, including us. And the host said, Lizanne, I don't envy your position. And he kind of paused for effect. He was kind of a dramatic guy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, working at Schwab, doing what you do, I don't think there will ever be an environment again in our lifetime that individual investors will want to buy stocks. And it makes me question their survivability of a company like Schwab. So I made some sort of, well, I beg to differ. Um, We get in the car. My husband looked at me and said, I'm guessing you heard it. And I knew immediately what he was talking about. I said, the bell ringing. He said, I knew you were thinking that. And I reached out to my friend over the weekend. I said, I'm not going to mention your name, but can I share the story in something I'm going to write? And it was a report I titled, Here Comes the Sun. And it was sort of a, you know, shoeshine guy, but in the opposite direction. You know, last man standing, there's no one left in the despair mode. Like, this is what, this is what bottoms feel like. But I also said to my husband, we had been vacationing in Naples, Florida for many years. My sister has lived there for many years. My husband wanted to buy in 04, 05, 06. And I said, uh-uh, market's going to crash, terrible housing market. So I said, now we buy. So we bought our house in Naples, Florida in April of 09. So that was definitely the best investment that we ever made. It just happened to be in the real estate market. (laughs) Yeah, those conversations, I think, are worth gold, but also, you know, the showcase the emotional side of this that everyone is suspect to, like that you can't control it, but it's uh, worth taking note. Lizanne, this has been a tour de force. It's been a blessing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. What a fun conversation. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.